Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Uh, We're going to continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll pick up in chapter 2 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. So, I know that last week we touched on just briefly uh, the second part of Matthew chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to give us a little bit of a summary of that, and then uh, we'll continue into uh, Matthew chapter 2 here this morning. And so as we begin, why don't you, if you would, just read along with me the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. If you would agree with me in prayer once more as we look to his word. Father, this is your word, which you exalt above your own name. Lord, we thank you for it, and we ask, Lord, again by your spirit, uh, that we would appreciate it here this morning, that we would understand, that we would apply it to our lives, Lord, that we would grasp, even if in some small way, the significance, Lord, of your word and and its availability to us here this morning. May we treasure it during our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we've come as far as chapter 2, albeit last week we didn't consider uh, in depth the second half of chapter 1. And it's a passage that we often review, all of chapter 1, and in our case, not even that long ago as we went through the holiday season. And so the account of the birth of Jesus Christ, just to give us a summary of it again, is really a story about obedience. It's about surrender. It's about selflessness and humility from Mary and her willingness to do what the Lord desired of her, to Joseph and the swallowing of his own pride and surrendering to the will of God, to God himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, and his willingness to humble himself, leaving his place in heaven to become a man so that he might die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. We could all do well to consider such humility today. We've talked about that often here recently, the importance of humility. As encouraged by Paul in Philippians 2, we must seek also to have the same mind that was in Jesus, Paul tells us, being willing to esteem others as better than ourselves. What a place this world would be if the church, even if the church alone were truly about the business of putting others above themselves. 
recent uh, surveys show that around 167 to 200 million Americans profess to be Christians. And that's a pretty big gap between those two numbers, but whichever one you look at, 167 million, 200 million, uh, in a population that's just over 330 million as of 2020, what we would call that is the majority. But it doesn't feel like it these days, does it? Does it feel as if in our country right now that the majority of people truly belong to the church and are of the church? As believers, the call to have the mind of Jesus is not just a suggestion. It is a command. And to do this, we must be about pursuing Him and worshiping Him. In in our world today, when it comes to Jesus, we have some who are in pursuit of Him. Hopefully that is every one of us here this morning, that we are truly pursuing Him. Having first been laid hold of by the Spirit, they are now in pursuit of Him, wanting more. Paul writes in Philippians 3.12, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. It's recognizing when Jesus gets a hold of our lives that we then in turn want to know Him more. We want to pursue Him more. And that needs to be us, Christian. But then there are some that are indifferent towards Him. And there are some who are even hostile towards Him. And as we make our way into chapter 2 this week, we see an example of each of these groups. In chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Right away here we encounter a few different people. First we learn of a man named Herod, who was king of Judea. And we've not heard much from him yet in Matthew's gospel. But he is the ruling king in this area under the authority of Rome. And he is often referred to as Herod the Great, in part because of the many accomplishments and advancements uh, that he made, whether that be politically or in the form of infrastructure uh, for the Jewish people especially. His investment in the temple was much appreciated by them. But he was also uh, called great in terms of his terror that was unleashed on any who opposed him whether they opposed him outright or whether it was even he perceived that they were in opposition to him. Even his own wife, his own children, he did not hesitate to take the life of anyone who stood in his way. And so here we find Herod, and then we're also introduced here to the wise men. This is probably the most common term that we have for this group. It seems each year during the holidays we talk a little bit about the wise men. Other translations render their title as uh, a party of astrologers, a group of astrologers, or the magi, or the kings that come to visit Jesus. And, and when we think about them, especially as we sing the song about the kings, we think of a particular number of them, don't we? Three of them, typically, is how we refer to them. We think of these three wise men. And why is that? It's probably because of the song, primarily. And when we sing, We Three Kings, and I don't know how the rest goes. Somebody knows it. Yeah, I got nothing. I got We Three Kings, and that's it. I'm done after that. Here's the thing. We don't know. We don't know that there was three of them. There are so many things that are ingrained in our minds and in our traditions that we just sort of take for granted and assume, and Scripture doesn't tell us that. Nothing in Scripture tells us that there were three. We only assume that because, as we'll see later, they bring Jesus three gifts. And so it's been assumed that because there were three gifts, there must have been three wise men, each bringing their own gift. But as we know, especially around Christmas time, it doesn't necessarily require three people to receive three gifts. And so 
Uh, this has sort of become ingrained in our, in our mindset. And what we do know, based on the wording here, though, is that there was more than one. There was more than one of them. So what we can say confidently is that there was at least two wise men, if not maybe more. Some people believe that there was actually a whole, whole group of them uh, because there seems to be such a commotion as they come into town. We also don't know that they were kings. In fact, it's highly unlikely that they were kings. But we can be reasonably confident that they were prominent, that they were wealthy, as evidenced by the fact that they had traveled a great distance and had the resources to do so, and also because of the gifts that they brought him. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, which were of great value at that particular time, and even really still today. Gold, certainly, but even, even frankincense uh, is something of value today. And so the literal term for these men is magi, or magui, which is translated wise men. And so this is a good title for us to give them, but it's also uh, where we get our word magic or magician. Uh, and it's not too far-fetched as it relates to them to think that these men were considered almost sort of a wizard in the area that they came from. Might have been uh, referred to as a sorcerer. And, and uh, again, we, we refer to them sometimes as astrologers. And they were men of the East, as Scripture indicates. It's probably quite likely that they came from the area of Babylon, as men like this were common in that area. We see that even in the book of Daniel. Uh, and further, because of the exile of the Jewish people to that area, it makes sense that then there would have been the availability of some Jewish Old Testament texts for people like this to have read over the period of time. Because these men, uh, they knew and were looking for the Jewish Messiah, whom they referred to as the one who was born King of the Jews. How did they know about him? How did they, uh, how did they know to look for him and how to find him? Well, again, as it says, they saw his star and they began to follow it. And because of that, because they knew to follow the star, they probably were familiar with some of the Old Testament texts, specifically Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, we have the account of Balak and Balaam. And Balak is the king of Moab, and he's concerned about the growing power of the Israelites. And so he calls on Balaam, who is also a sort of magi, and uh, he calls on him to curse the Israelites. And Balaam uh, goes out to do this work, but uh, he hears from God. And God tells him, you're not going to curse the Israelites, you're going to bless them. And he ends up blessing them three times. And in Numbers chapter 24, verses 16 and 17, we read what's commonly called the Oracle of Balaam. And this is really the third blessing that he bestows upon them. As he says, the Oracle of one who hears the sayings of God and has knowledge from the Most High who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not near. And note here, a star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. Now these men being astrologers, uh, studying the constellations, they now notice a new star, a bright star and an unusual one. And knowing the scriptures, they consider the purpose of the star, and they decide that they're going to begin to follow it with the intention of finding the one who was born king of the Jews, so that they might worship him. So they set out on a journey, likely hundreds if not thousands of miles, a journey that would take them through Jerusalem and into an encounter with Herod. As we read in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, troubled is one of those words where, as we read it in our Bibles, it can be easy to just go, okay, he was a little upset here. But if we really understand the, the original definition of this word, it would be better read that he was in turmoil or that he was terrified. 
Why would Herod be terrified in this moment? Well, because he felt threatened. He felt threatened. And you see, that's often what happens with people. Even in our world today, there are many who are threatened by the idea of Jesus. Why? Well, like Herod, if, if it's true what they say about Jesus, if he is who they say he is, if to our world today, to a lost world today, to recognize that Jesus is in fact who we as believers proclaim him to be, well, then that means something for them, doesn't it? It begins to threaten perhaps their way of life. It begins to threaten the comfort that maybe they enjoy. It begins to threaten their position or even their perceived power. Certainly that was the case for Herod. Herod held tightly to his idol of power and of control. And the threat of a new king was bringing all of this into question. So in an effort to find out more, Herod calls for the chief priests and the scribes. And in verse 4 we read, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. After all, he's assuming that they are going to be the ones who should know this. And the Jewish leaders of the day, they should have the necessary insight on this prophecy as well as its validity. And sure enough, in verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, for the, the scribes and the, and the priests now as they come together, they aced this trivia test that Herod had for them. Right away, yes, we know, here's where he's going to come from. And the prophet here that they're referring to is Micah, and it comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which speaks clearly to the fact that the Messiah, the ruler who is to be born king of the Jews, will come from Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting in this is that we see fully here the first group of people who represent a common response to Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes especially who knew the scriptures, they seem to care little for the fact that the Messiah has potentially come. And this prophecy has been fulfilled. You see, they were indifferent towards Jesus. They were indifferent these men had dedicated their lives to knowing the Word of God, claiming they were anxiously awaiting the Messiah. Yet, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, they were always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It seems, based on Matthew's account, that much of the city was aware that something was happening. That these men had arrived and, and what or who it was that they were looking for and seeking after, but they didn't care enough to pursue it. You see, sadly, there is much indifference that exists today, not only in our world, but also within our churches. Like the religious leaders of the day, there are people who know Scripture, hearing it each week as they sit and listen, but there is little desire on their part to actually pursue and to know God more, and to place Jesus, consequently, on the throne of their own life, recognizing Him as King. Why is that? Well, I don't know the answer for every individual, but perhaps in some cases be it because it requires too much effort or because it threatens too much of what they hold dear. That to know Jesus more and to know His Word means that certain things in my life may start to be called into question. Or maybe apathy has set in because of comfort and they see no need for Jesus, perhaps because they're not looking beyond tomorrow. I don't know what it is for each individual, but what they're demonstrating is great indifference and their lack of interest in knowing more of Him. And sadly, there are many today who would fit into this group. In verse 7, then we read, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, 
that I may come and worship him also. Now, we all know that Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. Verses 16 through 18 of chapter 2, which we won't get to today, that confirms this for us. This is deception on the part of Herod, and in fact, what Herod desires to do is to kill Jesus. Herod represents for us, as you might have expected, the hostile response that we often see towards Jesus even still today. Have you guys by chance noticed that there's a lot of hostility in our country these days? It's probably not been lost on you. Independent, let's say, of, of, of anything that may be related to the things of the Lord, there is just hostility in general. And, you know, hostility, especially uh, as it characterizes our reaction to something when we have a hostile response, typically that's rooted in fear. Fact is, we are only hostile towards that which we feel is a real threat to our way of life, to our particular thought, to the things that are ingrained within us. Notice even in our culture today, why is there such a visceral reaction to the different things that are going on beyond, of course, what is a normal uh, right response of just a burdened heart over injustices or violence or famine or plague or anything else that may be going on. But I'm talking about real visceral reaction to different views. Because often what is happening is that in those circumstances, your own idols, your, your own way of life is somehow being threatened. At least the way that you perceive that. And this is why I find such a reaction to Jesus, uh, a hostile reaction to Jesus, so interesting because it really shows uh, that for the professing atheist, for example, that there is something to this whole Jesus thing that really threatens them. You know, people aren't so hostile towards uh, Buddhism, are they? To some New Age thinking. In fact, in our culture today, many people embrace it because this New Age movement of, of all sorts of different things essentially says, you do you, uh, your own truth, have it your way, do whatever makes you comfortable, right? And when that happens, we're allowed to just sort of remain who we are because it's what we want to be and nothing comes in and really threatens that. People aren't so hostile towards that way of thinking because everything else allows for the individual to, like Herod, remain on their own throne. Whereas to consider Jesus means to consider the true king and whether or not he sits on the throne of your life and the implications if in fact he does. So then in verse 9 we read, When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. As we come to this portion here, we see a few things that are worthy of our consideration this morning. The first, while it is not explicitly stated, it's an important note for us to just consider about the scene here and the fact that this is not the manger scene, okay? As the wise men arrive here to see Jesus, this is not your typical nativity scene. I don't mean to burst any bubbles this morning for those bubbles that may still exist, but the fact is our nativity sets that we put up every Christmas, they're wrong. Okay? They're just wrong. Doesn't mean we can't use them. Doesn't mean it's not fun. We have one every year that we put up, and it's always, the, it's always the joy of decorating for Christmas, right? It's the last element that we put out in every year, and my kids know I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to say, well, this isn't actually accurate here. And I've got to be that dorky pastor that just wants to point out that this, this would have been this way. And it's not a barn. It's not a stable. It's, it's a hewn out rock. It's probably more like a cave. And no, the wise men wouldn't have been there. Why would the wise men not have been there? There's a few different reasons why. First off, we know that the wise men, they decide to go look for who they, they don't know necessarily to be Jesus yet, but that they know he's the king of the Jews. They decide to go look for him when the star appears in the sky, announcing Jesus' birth. Now, if they live hundreds or thousands of miles away by camel, that's quite a journey or however else they were planning to get there, right? They're not going to make it there that night. It's going to take some time for them to arrive. Plus, they've got that stop off in Jerusalem to meet with Herod. And so that would be the first thing here. Secondly, it says that they entered what? The house. That they went into the house. Now, you could look at this a couple of different ways. Some people think that Jesus was, in fact, born in a house, not in a stable of the day, uh, because at that particular time on a cold night, many people would actually bring their animals into the main room of the house. That's possible. What seems more likely here is that after being in Bethlehem for a little while and you know, things have been a little rough for Mary and Joseph here, that they probably did have family in the area, and they've maybe settled in now to a home in that area, at least for a period of time. And so they're in a different location at this point. And then finally, and we'll consider this more next week, but Herod, as he determines that what he needs to do in order to rid himself of any threat to his throne, he decides, sadly, that he's going to kill as many baby boys as are necessary in Bethlehem so that he can have confidence that they've gotten the one-born king of the Jews. Now, in his effort to determine who he needs to kill, he asks the wise men earlier on, tell me, when did you see the star? As they communicate to him when they saw the star, that leads Herod to then make the decision that I should probably kill all babies or all little boys from the age of two and under. And so that tells us also that there was likely a window of some sort that he was trying to make sure he can capture the child within that. And so all of that tells us at this point, not definitively, but Jesus is probably somewhere in the age of maybe six months, even up to 18 months old by the time the wise men arrive. And that kind of changes our picture of the nativity a little bit, right? Now again, put up your nativities next year. It's okay. It's good for people to see that focus on the birth of Jesus as they enter into your home. But just know that some of what we accept, some of the things, listen, even our, I'm not going to go into this, even our timelines. This will blow your mind if you haven't thought about this one. Do you know when Herod the Great died? 4 B.C., Think about that one for a minute, right? How could he have, wait a second, but he's here and Jesus is born. How could he have died four years before Christ? Well, listen, our timelines are off a little bit. Listen, what we need to focus on, does the scripture tell us when exactly Herod died or when exactly Jesus was born? No. And so remember, sometimes we do the best that we can to figure some of these things out, and then we just begin to sort of accept them the way that they are. But the fact is, especially with timelines and dates, it's a little difficult sometimes to narrow those things down. So we always got to keep that in mind as we're looking at, as we're thinking about our faith and we're thinking about the stories uh, of the Bible and how much we apply our tradition to it versus just looking at what the Bible says and accepting that as the literal truth. So... That would be the first thing we need to consider. Secondly, I want us to note here that the wise men followed the star. And it appears that the star also moved 
to direct them to Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, because, Christian, it reminds us of something that I think is very important this morning, that the sovereign God of the universe can and will direct nature. His creation, that he will use it to proclaim his glory and to draw individuals unto himself. We need to remember that today. It's easy for us to feel a little hopeless sometimes, isn't it? Especially as we look at what's going on in our world. We need to remember that, and I would say to you, nothing gives me more encouragement or peace like remembering that I serve a God who is still on the throne, who is over all things, who can direct His creation to accomplish His purposes. On those hopeless days, which for some people may be more as of late than before, we need to remember we've got a sovereign God who is still seated on the throne and that he will accomplish his plan and purposes. Or if you have someone, who's, who, a loved one, a friend who's, who's maybe lost still, and you continue to pray for them, do that. Continue to pray. And know that it's not just about you. You know, a lot of times we can get hung up on feeling like, I've got to do more, I've got to do more, I've got to... And listen, that's not wrong necessarily if you're responding to the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit to take an opportunity when the Lord's giving you a, an open door to share the truth of the gospel with someone. But sometimes we, take, uh, we, we put undue pressure on ourselves for what needs to be accomplished spiritually in somebody else, and we need to step back and just go, man, from the beginning of time, God has been orchestrating His creation to accomplish His purposes. He's been drawing people in whatever way He needs to. And that should be a relief to us, as well as an encouragement. And then finally, in this scene, we see a profound act of worship and perhaps one of the most significant demonstrations of faith in perhaps all of Scripture. Now, that sounds maybe like a pretty extreme statement to say, but I want to explain that. Let's deal first with the worship. Here we see fully, in this act of the wise men, we see fully the third response that some have toward Jesus. You can be indifferent to Jesus. You can be hostile towards Jesus. And then there are those who truly worship Jesus, who pursue him. Here, these prominent, educated, powerful, wealthy men with material gifts as well as the gift of their own hearts, in great joy, it says, exceedingly great joy, they bowed down and they worshiped a baby. That's pretty amazing when you think about that. Now, it's said that you only bow down, culturally speaking, you only bow down when, when before someone who is superior to you. And you would only give such an extravagant gift to those who are greater than you. These incredible men who, uh, we don't know much about their background other than, again, they had the resources to travel, they had the intention of traveling, they brought gifts, they, were, uh, they had the ability to figure out Scripture, to, they seemed to be the only ones that were really tracking this star the way that they were, and here they come down, they come and they bow before a baby and proclaim to this, whatever age he was, six months, 12 months, 18 months, doesn't matter, they lay prostrate before him to declare, you are superior to me, you are greater than me. That's worship, guys. You know, we come into church and we talk about worship. We have worship before church and we do three or four songs and sometimes we can just get caught up in the process of just singing a song. Worse yet, sometimes we can even think, I don't like that part. I'm not much of a singer myself. We're just fundamentally in those moments missing what it truly means to worship. As we sing those songs, it does, we, don't even, we wouldn't even necessarily need to sing a song. 
It doesn't necessarily need to be music. It helps us. It's intended to bring us to a place of worship. The, the act, though, what happens through that time is about us coming to a place where, again, we go, man, Lord, you are superior to me. You're greater than me. Lord, you deserve my whole life, and I just lay it all down before you. That's what should be happening during that time. It should be happening during our time in the Word. It should be happening in your devotional time, your time in prayer and reading. It should be happening throughout the course of the day. And when we do those things, how much easier is it for us to have the mind of Christ, the one who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but instead made himself in humility less than what he was, his rightful place in heaven. How much easier is it when we have that mindset than to go, okay, Lord, this is how I'm going to... And then to be able to esteem people as better than yourself. Well, if we're constantly coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, here's my life, it makes that that much more achievable. And so for Jesus, then they bring him these, these gifts and they bring him gold, which is a sign of his uh, royalty. And they bring him frankincense, which is a sign of his deity. And, and they bring him myrrh, which is a symbol of his humanity and points to his eventual death. This incredible act of worship, and then comes their faith. J.C. Ryle writes this of the account of the wise men. He says, we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. And he's taken it a step further to say, this is it. You want to talk about faith? It's the wise men. And my goodness, this is a pretty extreme statement, right? Having for all of us just finished Hebrews and chapter 11 in Hebrews and all those examples of incredible faith, why is it that the wise men would be sort of exalted as the greatest example? Well, for us to consider the fact here that Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience, and what he, I think, wants them to recognize here is this. Did the king of their land worship Jesus? No. Did the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the priests, did they worship Jesus? No. You see, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 11, John writes, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Rather, and here's where this incredible moment comes in, is a group of Gentiles. Far before, by the way, the church was established and before uh, the gospel was turned to the Gentiles because of the blindness of the Jewish people, the gospel began to go forth into the Gentiles. And remember, God had to deal with Peter there over his own issues about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Long before that, here we have a group of Gentiles from a faraway land who in faith set out to find the one born king of the Jews. They traveled across mountain and desert for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. They risked the wrath of a king as they know Herod told them, you tell me when you found him. And instead, they go another way. They avoid him. And knowing who Herod was and what he was, what he was capable of, they, they risked their lives. They gave of their treasure and they humbled themselves by bowing before a baby, offering their lives and their hearts as an act of surrender. That is a demonstration of faith. These were indeed wise men as they put aside their pretense, as they put aside their pride to worship a true king. And that is a tremendous act of faith that we ought to look to today as an example. In Luke, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You see, the wise men help us to see that, that in fact Jesus came for all men, that he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to saving faith in Him. You know, 2,000 years ago, God arranged the stars in the sky to announce and to draw people unto Himself. And He is still on the throne and He's still at work. He's still working to draw individuals unto Himself and that should be an encouragement to us today. The question for us, for the question for you, is how do you respond to the one who is born King of the Jews? 
Is it with hostility? Hopefully none of us in here. I think the, the fact that you are here this morning suggests to me that you're not in that camp. There are many who are in that. But it shouldn't just be assumed that because we're here today that we're not part of the group that may be indifferent. It's easy for us to become indifferent to Jesus and to the things of the Lord as we get stuck in our own routines and as we even day in, day out, maybe go through the motions as it relates to our time in the Word and in our devotional life and not really think about or give the Spirit the opportunity to really speak to us and encourage us. Or, of course, are we a part of that third group that we should all desire to be in where we truly worship as we continually and in humility lay down our lives before Him in an act of surrender. That's where we ought to be as the church because the world needs us to be there today. Our world has plenty of hostility today. It has plenty of indifference. Yes, again, even within the church. What our world truly needs today is a mighty force of sold-out saints who are in the radical pursuit of Jesus Christ, just like these wise men, that they'd lay it all, they'd risk it all just to see him and to find him. And so which one are we today? Which one are you? Let's go ahead and close in prayer and consider this as we have our final song. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause here once more before you this morning and we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, that you give us everything we need within the word, that by your spirit you convict us, you challenge us, you encourage us. And Lord, forgive us also of ways in which we look at some of these stories within the Bible that may be a tradition, have become our traditional Christmas stories, Lord, and we fail to really look at them the way that you desire for us to. To hear in this passage of Scripture, to see such different response to you, Lord Jesus. Father, we do pray for those who have a hostile response to you. Lord, we can only imagine how lost they are. And Father, we pray that your Spirit would draw them. That, Lord, you would cause us to be obedient when we have opportunities to love on those who need you and share the truth of the gospel with them. Father, we also pray for those who are indifferent, particularly, Lord, those who profess to be believers, those who are within the church. Lord, we pray that they would make the decision, Lord, to truly begin to, to pursue you, to, to go beyond just the religious ritual routines and to pursue a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. And if that's anyone here this morning, I would just encourage you that as we close in song, it's as simple as recognizing that, to repent of it, to say, Lord, I'm sorry, that's me, I've fallen into that. Lord, do a work in me, instill a fire in me again, Lord, that, that I would be in, in pursuit of you daily. Lord, I want to fall in love with you more, I want to know you more. Lord, I want to I have a stronger relationship with you. Whatever it is, just cry out to him. Ask him to give you a hunger for his word. For it's when we're in his word and we're in prayer daily that this love begins to grow. That's the best way for us to pursue him still today. And for each of us, Lord, if not already, bring us to a place where we, like these wise men, are in passionate pursuit of you each and every day. For we know, Lord, that when we do, that we will be a force in this world that can truly begin to turn it upside down or back right side up. And Father, do that work in us. Help us, Lord, to be a church of people, Lord, who are passionate about you, Lord, who make much of you in our community. Father, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks for this morning and our time together. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to continue to consider your word, Lord, and again, to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. 
For more info or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.